And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, advice so the SEC doesn't get caught with its crypto pants down. Plus, contractors facing some onerous new reporting requirements. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, mid-career hires will join the Foreign Service at mid-career ranks. That's the idea behind the State Department's Lateral Entry Pilot Program. Congress mandated the pilot to help find people in global health and strategic competition with China. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Global Talent Management at the State Department, Lucia Piazza. So the Lateral Entry Pilot Program, it's a congressionally mandated program, and it's designed to allow us to recruit and hire candidates into the Foreign Service as Foreign Service officers at the mid-level. We are hiring, for those who are interested in the grades themselves and understand our system, we're hiring Foreign Service officers at the O3 and O2, which is our mid-level, and we are focusing the program on specific areas that are priorities to the Secretary of State in which we feel like we could truly benefit from this outside expertise. What are some of those skill sets that you guys are particularly looking at here? The seven focus areas are cyberspace and emerging technologies, climate, environment and energy, global health security and diplomacy, strategic competition with the People's Republic of China, economic statecraft, multilateral diplomacy, and lastly, consular management. And so what is the career expectation for those who are selected for the lateral entry pilot We are hiring foreign service officers, or also sometimes known as generalists, and the expectation is that once they enter the foreign service, they are a member of the foreign service, and the expectation is that they will follow the same career path as the entire foreign service. So promotions over time based on performance and increasing responsibility over time. Got it. And so how will applicants be selected for the program? Right now, if you go to USA Jobs, um, you'll see that we have seven seven different vacancy announcements, one for each of the target areas. Those vacancy announcements are open through February 10. I will tell you that we've had tremendous response, like more than we had expected, which is super exciting. Candidates must meet the minimum qualifications as laid out in the vacancy announcement, and all candidates who meet those minimum qualifications will then go to what's called a qualifications evaluations panel. And that's a panel of experts from our assessment, so the people who select foreign service officers as a day-to-day job, as well as subject matter experts in these focus areas. And as I said, we have a lot of people applying for this program. So the qualifications evaluations panel is going to help us narrow the number of people we invite to the foreign service officer assessment to the ones who are the most competitive. So there will be qualified candidates who don't get invited because we are only going to focus on the very top candidates. We are hiring a total of 35 people. That's our goal under this program for 2024. And that's split amongst the seven focus areas. So as you can imagine, you know, there aren't a great number of opportunities. So we can't invite, you know, 100 people if we know we're only filling three or four slots per group. You already mentioned how the department is looking for people with particular skills, cyber savviness, economic expertise, some of those examples there. But uh, this is, of course, the Foreign Service and working overseas is part of the job here. Is the department expecting any kind of expertise in a language for these people who are looking to join? 
So it really depends on the specific job category. So, I mean, for instance, uh, our experts in China will have a certain expectation of certain proficiencies that would include language. We're using that to differentiate the grades in which we will hire folks. So to come in at the higher of the two levels, there's an expectation that the candidates will come in with the required proficiency in a foreign language, and that's detailed in the vacancy announcement. I just want to go back very quickly. So I talked a little bit about the qualifications evaluations panel and then invitation to the Foreign Service Officer Assessment. I want to make it very clear that the Foreign Service Officer Assessment is what we use for every member of the Foreign Service who is joining as a Foreign Service Officer. We're not differentiating, so it'll be the same assessment. And the candidates who are successful in that assessment receive a conditional offer, and that offer is conditioned upon receiving medical, security, and suitability clearances as required. And much like the Foreign Service process for our entry-level colleagues, colleagues will go onto a rank-ordered register, and they are hired based off of their position on that register. It sounds like, really in all regards, everyone who is brought in through this lateral entry pilot program, they really seem to be brought on board basically the same way as anyone else who would be joining the Foreign Service. I imagine that also means that they would also be taking the entry-level test, the Foreign Service officer test. That is one difference in this program. So the Foreign Service Officer Test is what we use essentially in place of minimum qualifications, right? So I would just think of it as different paths to the FSOA, the Foreign Service Officer Assessment. So for entry-level colleagues, they take the FSOT. They also have a QEP, so we select the strongest candidates amongst that pool, and then they go to the FSOA, whereas our lateral entry colleagues apply via the the vacancy announcement, which think of that as the analog to the FSOT and the the minimum qualifications, and then from there, QEP and into the FSOA. So it's just a a different pathway, much like we have internal pathways for certain folks. We have a program called the Mustang Program, and that's for folks who are currently at the State Department who wish to join the Foreign Service at the entry level. There's a pathway for that to the FSOA, and there's also a mid-level conversion pathway for civil service personnel who want to join who are at the State Department. This is now the fourth pathway, but all to the same thing, right? Everyone has to meet and pass that incredibly rigorous examination in order to join. Got it. And you mentioned already a little bit some of the qualifications, some of the things that candidates have to go through in order to uh, make it through the other side and become a Foreign Service officer. You mentioned the security screening, kind of the medical screening, things of that nature. Are there other requirements for the program that I'm missing here that we should bring up? Each one of the vacancy announcements has very specific sort of educational and professional experience, the criteria that are outlined, and those are tied to that specific focus area for the secretary. I guess to broaden out the the scope of the, the questioning here, ultimately, why is the State Department opening this program up? Because it seems like, you know, you guys have been getting a pipeline of uh, people coming in the standard way of uh, people who are earlier in their careers, considering a career in the Foreign Service and going through the procedures that way. So why is the department going forward with this lateral entry program? The basic answer is this is congressionally mandated, right? So it's in the NDAA that we we have to create a lateral entry program. However, I will say, I mean, like, I think there's there's a real need, especially for these emerging areas where we either don't have the background or the expertise, especially, you know, as things change so rapidly, there's a real need to bring in folks who are also interested in diplomacy, who want to be foreign service officers, but who come with this wealth of experience in these very, very specific areas. When the secretary and others looked at, you know, this program, we thought to ourselves, how do we 
use this very cool tool that Congress is 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 putting out there for us to accomplish these goals. So it's a, it's a real happy marriage, actually. As far as the application window for folks, what timeline are we looking at for people who are interested in signing up? How long do they have to do this? So the vacancy announcements will close February 10th. From that point, it, you know, we anticipate having completed our qualifications evaluations panel and our an invitation to the FSOAs should go out sometime in April. And then we hope to start scheduling folks for the FSOA as soon as May. So timeline for the vacancy announcement is at February 10th, but we are moving very, very fast because A, we have a need and B, because, you know, Congress is expecting us to deliver and we're going to deliver. Okay, got it. What are the plans for the next phase of this pilot program? What are you guys looking to do beyond this initial cohort? So the beauty of the pilot program is, right, we're going to we're going to run this iteration. We're going to see what worked. We're going to figure out what didn't work. Were we able to attract the skill sets that we need? Like I said, we've had tremendous uh, response. Um, our social media engagement kind of through the roof. We had over 4,000 people sign up for a webinar that we offered on Monday. So we're going to take a look at what we got. We're going to see what worked. We're going to tweak it as necessary. And then the plan is to open the vacancy announcement again later this year for a second round because uh, we, we will be running the pilot program for five years. Lucia Piazza, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the State Department's Bureau of Global Talent Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, contractors facing some onerous new reporting requirements. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Unless Congress says otherwise, federal contractors will have a raft of new disclosure requirements imposed by the Biden administration, specifically climate, ESG, cybersecurity, with how companies might deal with it, we turn to the head of public policy at Grant Thornton, Greg Wallig. Mr. Wallig, good to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. And let's take them one at a time. Climate reporting. This has been something that the administration has wanted since its inception. Well, what do they ask for specifically? Right. Uh, and so that's actually what a lot of people are asking right now is give us some clear guidance on what the requirements are. The Security Exchange Commission, SEC, has been sort of teasing that these requirements are coming for publicly traded companies. The government has a different span of control and where they can affect change is through their contracting requirements. And so the government has been hinting that they will start to put these greenhouse gas emission standards into federal contract requirements. We actually have our first example of that, and it's called Alliant 3. It's a government-wide contracting vehicle, or GWAC, and that is expected to include greenhouse gas disclosure requirements. It's in draft right now, and we're expecting it to be released in April or May, but all of the materials show that that will be an evaluation criteria. Yeah, that's really interesting. Suppose you're, I'm just making this up, a reseller of some commodity on Alliance 3, and you are selling your hardware to the government under that contract, they've had a tough time getting that one out because of protests and so forth, then what is the meaning of climate and greenhouse gas emissions for a service type of organization? 
Do I have electric forklifts in a warehouse or that kind of thing? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question that a lot of the competitors are likely asking. We don't have any evidence. or We don't know where this is going. What we do know is typically these emissions are described as scope 1, scope 2, and scope 3 emissions. And we think about the typical components of Alliant 3. It's actually very buzzworthy. There are things like robotic process and automation, Internet of Things. But I like to think about data center operations. When you're operating your data center, you can make certain choices about how that data center runs, how efficient it is. That's scope one. Scope two is where you get your power from to power that data center. Scope three is a lot more nebulous, uh, and it includes upstream and downstream value chain. So when you think about the government, they are ultimately the consumer of your product or service that you're producing. Do you have access to how the government is using your service and what the greenhouse gas emissions are associated with that usage? No one knows right now. And certainly there are certain programs within the government that are classified, so your downstream user may not be able to provide you any information about how they're actually using your service. Right. And then the question is, how will that figure into contract award decisions? Because if the government has something it needs to get done and the best technical proposal at a good price, well, we don't like the fact that they have a gas stove in the company kitchen, then would that disqualify a contractor? I mean, that's unknown too, probably fair to say. What we do know is what the GSA has provided us, and they've told us that these scoring criteria are going to amount to about 4% of the overall scoring for the contract. So it's not an overwhelming number, but it's still significant. And as we all know, these contracts tend to hang on pretty tight criteria. So 4% would be enough of a motivation, I think, for companies to want to understand where they are as far as the greenhouse gas emissions, certainly those things that they can control, which are those scope one and scope two emissions. Right. Well, maybe we can get them down to 3.75 and it won't be so bad. <laughs> we can only wish. But in any case, it's a huge compliance exercise too, isn't it? That's right. And I think that's the other piece that's uh, really important here is that business does not like uncertainty. Generally, we're okay to comply with requirements as long as they are defined for us. This is one that isn't currently defined. And so it's untested. We don't have an opportunity to say, is my criteria going to meet that 4% threshold so that I'll get the maximum possible points on this award? We don't know how that scoring is going to take place. And I think that level of uncertainty is causing a lot of confusion and, frankly, agitation within business that are just trying to do the right thing and score as highly as they can on these important contracts. And probably fair to say that not too many contracting officers really understand it either. I don't know how they could because we don't have any cases that would show how this is going to be evaluated. And again, the Alliant 3 is, is one of the first that we're seeing. I'm expecting more. Bear in mind, though, that we're in a presidential election year. So this is one of those issues where the candidates differ. Republicans and Democrats differ. Democrats tend to be more focused on environmental regulations, Republicans less so. We saw that in Congress over the summer, but both President Biden and whoever the Republican candidate would be have expressed very different views in this area. So what does that mean for future government contracts? We don't know. We do know that most government contracts have multi-year. The Alliant 3, as an example, is a 10-year contract vehicle. So how does that then extrapolate into the future? That remains to be seen. We're speaking with Greg Wallach. He is head of public policy at Grant Thornton. And let's turn to the ESG 
kind of the country cousin of the climate question that covers more things. ESG, refresh our memory, stands for? Environmental, social, and governance. Right. And so governance means do the unions have a say in your operations? And, and it, Governance is more related to how you oversee your operations. And that could include the composition of your board. There are a number of elements that are, again, fairly undefined. So environmental, at least, there are some scientific standards that you might be able to point to. The social and governance elements of ESG are much more qualitative than quantitative. And so, again, those standards become very fuzzy on the edges and, frankly, haven't really been very well defined to date. And out in the greater commercial marketplace, there have been some leading financiers, leading company heads that have pushed back against ESG because and there's some evidence that ESG-oriented companies do worse over the long haul for their stockholders than otherwise. I think that's considered debatable and you have arguments on one side or the other, this is where part of the issue is, is what are the criteria we're using to measure these entities? And one could argue that if you were to use these ESG standards, perhaps those companies are faring better because they're scoring better on these larger measures. If you're looking at pure financial measures, maybe the scoring criteria is different and you would evaluate the company differently. We don't have a common yardstick right now. And so the purpose of most of these disclosures is to educate the consumer. If the consumer is the government or the consumer is an investor, someone like you and me buying stocks in a company, the premise is we need to know more about these companies. But if we don't have a common standard, then we can't do an apples-to-apples comparison when we're making those decisions. Sure. So that, again, a remains-to-be-seen type of thing, how this will fall out in detail. And then, of course, we know that the cybersecurity reporting provisions are coming both via GSA and CISA on one side, and then the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program on the DOD side. And there's some similarities between the two sides. They're not identical, but cyber reporting is definitely coming. And there, the government has a clear interest, I think, relative to the other two issues. I'm glad you brought that up because those of us who operate in this space are using some of that history to guide what we imagine will happen in the future. So when we think about FedRAMP or we think about CMMI, we can see how those programs were rolled out. It's reasonable to expect that when we're looking at environmental standards, maybe a similar type of a framework would be used where there will be large company requirements and small company requirements, third-party assessment entities, But we don't know. And so right now it's all speculation. So really then companies have an existential thing to think about. So this sounds like all of these reporting requirements coming is not just simply your federal division or if you're purely federal. It's not just your business development or your capture people. It sounds like this is an executive suite concern. That's exactly right, Tom. And when you imagine many of these entities aren't just contracting with the federal government, They might be publicly traded. So you're talking about the SEC's disclosure requirements, which may be different. Some of them do business in foreign countries. European standards are different than what are proposed in the United States. So it's a real mesh of compliance requirements, and companies are able to do this. It's technically feasible when you imagine it, but you don't know how if you're not given those criteria. And it also has the effect of possibly saying to some companies that would like to be in federal, and the federal government is from all quarters saying it wants new suppliers, new innovation, but some people might say, this ain't worth it. 
it creates barriers to entry to be sure. And I think when you look at the stated desire to have more small businesses engaged in government contracting and then these enhanced requirements, those things can contradict each other. And so I think a lot of businesses are looking at what will this mean for subcontractors? So are these flow-down requirements? And will there be different thresholds, so large business versus small business requirements? Again, we don't know that right now. And then there's the possibility of a complete swing when the election happens and there could be a different administration from a different party. Nobody knows, but that could result in a lot of this being switched. That's very true. And everyone's looking at the presidential election. But if you're involved in this particular issue, this is one where there is a sharp contrast between the candidates and the parties as far as how they treat greenhouse gas emissions. Well, I guess if you want to watch something less stressful, maybe look for train wrecks. (laughs) Greg Wallach is head of public policy at Grant Thornton. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, even Microsoft executives had their passwords hacked. But first, advice so the SEC doesn't get caught with its crypto pants down. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Securities and Exchange Commission needs people with the expertise to oversee so-called crypto assets like Bitcoin. The Government Accountability Office finds the agency needs to update its workforce planning strategy to ensure it has the crypto experts it'll need. More now from the GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment, Michael Clements. Mr. Clements, good to have you with us. Pleased to be here, Tom. And let's begin with what is the SEC's role with respect to these cryptocurrencies, which actually are any of them not a scam, I guess is the question. To the extent that cryptocurrencies are securities, they would fall under U.S. securities law, for which SEC is responsible for enforcing. SEC has noted that many of these crypto assets are likely securities and therefore would fall under its remit. And have they been doing that? To date, I guess they have. They have some crypto expertise on board, did you find? That is correct. We found that there's approximately 120 staff out of the 4,900 staffs at SEC who are crypto experts or who spend a predominant amount of their time working on those issues. And in general, does the SEC have a workforce planning strategy? In 2016, we had made a recommendation to SEC to develop a workforce plan, particularly looking at skills gap analysis. In 2019, SEC had taken steps to address that. In particular, they developed a competency survey to understand what the skills their staff had, and also the conduct what are known as human capital reviews, where they look at okay, what skills do we need updating. What we did find is that the SEC had not updated its workforce plan. Its last workforce plan ran 2019 through 2022. So, in fact, we recommended in this most recent report that they update that workforce plan. Is there any indication that the staff that they have now on the crypto beat, let's say, made any mistakes or have they missed anything? I mean, SEC famously missed the Madoff affair many years ago. That was not a crypto situation, but it was brought to the agency's attention and nothing happened and so on and so forth. The rest is history. And then we had this FTX failure last year, a spectacular thing. Was the SEC on top of that with the people it had? The commission has been engaged in 
a fair amount of outreach with the industry to let them understand what their obligations are. The commission has issued a number of guidance documents to the industry to let them know, okay, who needs to register and uh, under what conditions. And we can follow on that the commission has taken enforcement actions. The commission has brought over 130 enforcement actions against entities that have not registered in compliance with the securities laws. Because these companies are selling basically investment instruments in something that actually doesn't exist. It's a hash somewhere on a piece of software hidden you know, somewhere on the Internet, basically, is what you're investing in. But nevertheless, they have the mechanisms of investment as if it was a stock. Fair way to put it. Correct. If the crypto asset meets the definition of a security, it is required to be registered. And any exchange that is trading those crypto assets need to be registered. In many instances, these crypto assets fall under what would be considered an investment contract, which is a type of security. And again, SEC in 2019 provided a framework for industry participants to be able to look at their crypto asset and decide is this a security or not? And just briefly, do you have any sense of the industry itself? I mean, is it like electric cars where there's a bunch of people jumping in in a year? Most of them will be bankrupt and disappear, and there'll be a couple left standing, maybe Tesla, maybe one or two others. Is that how it is in crypto where you know Bitcoin will still be there and the rest of them will fall away? I don't know if I want to predict who might be here <laughs> in, in five years or so. At this point, Bitcoin does have the most staying power. And in recent days, in fact, the commission improved several spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds for folks who perhaps want exposure to Bitcoin, but don't want to actually hold the Bitcoin themselves. Sure. We're speaking with Michael Clements, Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment at the Government Accountability Office. And so what have you recommended for SEC? So in the December report, we had three recommendations. First, as I mentioned, to update its workforce plan, align that plan with its uh, strategic plan, which runs from fiscal year 22 through 26. Second, uh, SEC has set up an office which is dedicated to crypto and really technology policy at large, which is called its FinHub. We had two recommendations there. First is to formalize its policies and procedures around its controls just to make sure that it's in fact achieving its objectives. And then secondly, to develop performance goals and measures it had not done so at this point. Again, just to help make sure that it's achieving what it's intended to achieve. Yeah, these are the basics that you would have with any program that an agency initiates. That is correct. FinHub is a relatively new entity. It started out in 2018 within the Division of Corporation Finance. It became a, a separate standalone office in 2020. Some of these foundational elements are still needed in terms of policies and procedures and performance goals. And by the way, which areas of Congress tend to be interested in the SEC and what it's doing and with Bitcoin? Is there correspondence between the agencies that oversee SEC and also have to do with the uh, cryptocurrencies themselves? That's correct. So in Congress, the two main committees would be in the House, Committee on Financial Services. In fact, we did this uh, work for the Chairman McHenry of that committee, and also in the Senate, the Banking Committee. That said, in some cases, these cryptocurrencies and crypto assets could be considered commodities. In fact, Bitcoin is generally considered to be a commodity, in which case also the agriculture committees in both the House and Senate are involved. Interesting. So it's both a financial investment instrument, a security, and it's also a commodity. 
In the case of Bitcoin, the general thought is that is a commodity. There are other coins in crypto assets in general that are considered to be securities. And I guess we assume this, but I should ask it directly. There are special technological information you need to know to be able to oversee what's going on in Bitcoin because there is no physical commodity. I suppose in theory you could get a truck full of pork bellies. Not that anyone ever does, but someone maybe maybe a processing plant does, but no one ever takes physical possession of anything. It doesn't exist in time and space. That's our, our sense that given the complexity of the technology, that it's important for, again, staff to have these expertise. In, in fact, that was one of the driving forces for SEC setting up the FinHub office in the first place. And did the SEC generally agree with the recommendations you made, the three recommendations? Yes, SEC agreed and has committed to taking action to address all three. Well, let's hope they help us avoid the next few FTXs, potentially, that could happen. (laughs) Michael Clements is Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment at the GAO. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, even Microsoft executives had their passwords hacked. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. No one is immune from cybersecurity attacks, it seems. Just days ago, several senior Microsoft executives fell victim to a password spray attack coming from Russia. Did the company downplay how serious this was, and did it fail to use some basic best practices? We get analysis now from Stanford University cyber analyst and former White House senior director for cyber policy, A.J. Grotto. Mr. Grotto, good to have you with us. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And just review what happened here. What is a spray, a tactic, and what happened to the Microsoft execs? A password spray attack is when a threat adversary tries the same password across many accounts. So it's an attempt to guess a password. In this case, they guessed right and were able to break into this legacy non-production test tenant account, which is essentially a a test environment. And uh, we're then able to use that account to get access uh, to email accounts that belonged to senior executives and employees working in Microsoft's security and legal teams. And what kind of a password would you need to be immune from a spray attack? Because if you use those generated, suggested passwords, a lot of programs have, you know, they're 15 characters, totally random. Yeah, this this probably wasn't a very complex password. Uh, the other factor here is there was no multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, using that sort of second means of logging in, the text message or the authentication app, which which is a security no-no these days. But I mean, a simple password can be found by a spray attack, what types of passwords can it find? Like where you go around the perimeter of the keyboard or your name and birthday, that kind of thing? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Password one, admin one, you know, not very complex passwords. Passwords that that have, you know, uh, known words in them, English words. Um, it's, it's another no-no. Um, and uh, a complex password probably would have would have gone a long way towards preventing this from happening. Right. So these are programs that generate 
these types of things, are they context-based? That is, okay, this is Microsoft. We know the person's name, and from public records, you can get birthdays and stuff. Could it be that they, they designed the passwords for this particular spray attack iteration? It's possible. We don't, we don't know. Um, you know there, there are still um, details about the attack that, that, that Microsoft hasn't released yet, and I suspect we'll, we'll learn more in the coming weeks as, as details begin to emerge about what happened and, frankly, what, what other companies, what, what other victims may have been affected by uh, the same threat actor. You have looked at this in some detail, and we know we can attribute the source of the attack too, correct? Yeah, this, this was a, a, a you know, Russian, Russian intelligence. To be clear, you know, Microsoft was a victim here. That said, this attack was like parking your, your car in a rough neighborhood, leaving uh, your door unlocked and your valuables in plain sight. This kind of, of, of episode should not happen, especially for a company that, that, that touts its security bona fides the way that Microsoft does. Right. I was going to say, what are the learnings here? Because a lot of companies are probably looking at this and saying, well, how are my passwords? Well, you know, one learning is use complex passwords. The other is uh, use multi-factor authentication. And this is the latest um, in a string of security problems at Microsoft. Um, in, in 2021, uh, 30,000 organizations email servers were hacked due to a Microsoft uh, Exchange server flaw. Last year, Chinese hackers breached uh, U.S. government emails via a, a Microsoft cloud exploit. Three years ago, it was at the center of, of the SolarWinds attack, uh, which, which was actually carried out by the same threat actor that, get, that got Microsoft in this recent episode. And now you have the federal government, in some cases in large numbers of people, uh, are using, and lots of agencies are using Microsoft 365 Cloud for the basic collaboration tools, Office, if you will, that everyone has. And therefore, they're not in your own. All of the data and all of the applications are not in the federal servers anymore. They're in Microsoft servers. How should agencies think about this? Microsoft has uh, something like 85% of the market for the federal government's productivity software, which is to say it has a stranglehold on that market. Well, the government bought it by choice, we should say. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and although, you know, I would argue that the government's also locked in, right? Uh, because Microsoft makes it difficult to switch. There are switching costs that make it not, not a straightforward proposition to, to shift to a new, to a new vendor that's the way you might, you know, sell a car and buy a new car. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a big believer in, in, in cloud. You know, there, there, are, there are security benefits, there are cost benefits, there are efficiency benefits. And so the answer here is not for organizations, federal government or otherwise, to move away from the cloud. It's, it's to support more competition in the marketplace for cloud services uh, so that customers can vote with their, their dollars and, and switch providers if they're not happy with the, the service they're getting from their incumbent uh, provider. We're speaking with A.J. Grotto. He's Senior Director of the Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance at Stanford. University and a former White House Senior Director for Cyber Policy. And getting back to the cyber question here with Microsoft, when you have cloud-hosted type of thing like this, each one of your people has a an account with their name on it and a password. And if the agency chooses to have multi-factor, then that's what they have. Are these like bathrooms in small houses where there might be a door on either end? And therefore, there's a back door through Microsoft into clients' accounts just as much as there well, is a front door through the client. Well, these you know these security problems at, at Microsoft's uh, corporate uh, headquarters do speak to a risk there. I mentioned uh, the Solar Winds attack from three years ago. You know, Microsoft products were at the center of that attack, and also Microsoft itself was was compromised by the Russian threat actor. We have we have a similar situation here where a Russian threat actor has been able to get inside of Microsoft systems. Uh, in this case, the, the, the running theory is that the threat actor was looking to understand what Microsoft understood about it, Microsoft's own research into this particular threat actor. And the fact that the adversary was able to get that kind of access 
is worrisome. It's it's because there's there's more to the story here than I think just the, the the password spray attack. The fact that the adversary was able to get access to email accounts that belong to senior executives. I'm not sure how that's possible unless this particular test account, unless the the, the system that the threat actors compromised had administrator privileges that allowed it to grant access. That's also a big no-no. There's there's a basic security principle. Uh, called the least privilege principle. And basically it means you give a system access to only the information and resources it needs to fulfill its purpose. Giving this account administrator privileges would seem to violate the least uh, privilege principle. Right. And a smart executive, say, in finance probably would say, don't give me access. Make sure my account can't get to certain places because that's how you have deniability and safety. Right. What we've learned so far from from public disclosures by Microsoft is there are at least two problems here. You've got the password problems, as well as this this second question of how the adversary was then able to swim around uh, Microsoft's networks and gain, gain access to these executives' emails. Right. So my question then is if, whether through phishing or through a password spray, a hacker can get the corporate account information of the cloud supplier, can it also use that means to get to the information of the clients of the cloud? It's possible. Cloud companies obviously, you know, have have a really strong incentive to, to prevent that from happening. But I think, you know, we we see these incidents going after, call it the Fort Knox of of cloud, Microsoft. You know, if you, if you can get break into Fort Knox, you've all of a sudden got access to um, to all the riches that are stored inside, and 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 so that 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 is a, a major concern. And I think Microsoft has some explaining to do still. I suppose if you could get into a test environment or a development environment, you could do things to the products under development and under test also probably. Yeah, you could. There was actually another vulnerability announced about a development environment in Microsoft Azure that that had a, a flaw that would allow adversaries to, to to mess with code. If organizations had updated their software, they wouldn't they wouldn't be exposed to this particular um, this particular threat. But again, it, it speaks to um, the the continued risk that poor security practices can can pose to organizations. And should Google and Amazon and their cloud operations fold their hands in satisfaction here or not? Well, no. I, I mean, look, I, I to me, as I come back to the competition point, what we need is more competition, and that means that you know Amazon and Google ought to beat Microsoft on security. These episodes point to a real vulnerability in, in Microsoft when it comes to security. A.J. Grotto is Senior Director of the Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance at Stanford University and also former White House Senior Director for Cyber Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. For years, agencies have had new hires fill out the SF-86 form, when the job requires a security clearance. The form runs more than 100 pages, but a new personnel vetting questionnaire will replace the SF-86 and several other forms in the coming years. The new form updates questions about marijuana use, mental health, and some other issues. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with security clearance attorney John Berry. It looks like the form is, is liberalizing a bit on the marijuana use, but at the same time, yeah, especially for the IC clients, I don't know that they're going to follow it. So are they really going to say 90 days and you're good? I don't think so. Because, you know, while you have the SF-86, you know, for the intelligence community, you're going to have polygraph and they're going to dive into these details and, and you're going to be tell, telling them the same information anyways. So I, I do think that it's going to take a lot more thought and effort to complete the form. It's looking at the Section 13 Marijuana and Cannabis Derivative Use. 
I know that's going to raise some questions because people are going to be like, okay, what is derivative use? Oh, that's not CBD or is it CBD? I, I have had intelligence agencies deny security clearances or add on uh, SCI clearances for using target CBD oil. So it looks good, but I'm not certain how, like, especially the IC is going to interpret it. I think that's an important point just on the fact that while this form is kind of, you know, standard, the agencies overlay their own processes and adjudicative criteria in some cases, right? That's right. And it's sometimes hard to tell what that criteria is. Sometimes like some of the, you know, law enforcement agencies will give you a little bit of information on their on their website. Don't apply if it's been three years or don't apply if it's been X amount of time, but most won't. And it's kind of this undefined sort of, I don't want to call it whole person concept, but whole drug concept. I don't think that people that have used it in college or a, while, a long time ago, I still think two years is a safe period of time with marijuana, especially if you haven't had a clearance during that time or weren't a law enforcement officer. So I don't think that the posts have changed. I think that maybe in a close case, it could make a difference like, you know, 90 days versus two years. But I think that the derivative use is going to confuse people. And some of some of the issues are, are interesting. It, you know, it looks like in the section 13 that, that I pulled up, have used marijuana or a cannabis derivative in the last 90 days. And it looks like if you say yes, but I'm not quite sure, but if you say yes, you go down to when within the last five years was the first time you used marijuana or a derivative and then the laundry list of questions. So it looks to me like it, the 90 days triggers that question, but I'm not sure. I, in the final form, if we see, you know, that just is number two, then really what's changed? Well, I mean, seven to five. And the other thing which was interesting that I found, the question that always comes up to me is later on in that section 13, it asks if you illegally manufactured, cultivated, trafficked, produced, transferred, shipped, received, or sold. Received or sold, you know, marijuana. It's like that's that's going to trigger almost everyone, anyways. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's a good good faith effort to try and like move us away because so many states have legalized it that it's confusing for a lot of individuals, and they're like, "Well, I thought it was legal," and I'm like, "Well, it is legal." by state, but not here. It doesn't mean they won't get past it, but it's still just a lot of questions and a lot more detail. Beyond the, the changes in marijuana questions, what do you see as some of the other notable changes in this form? I saw there were a lot of questions that were, you know, to me said that, okay, we're going to look into the January 6 issues more. Like what organizations do you belong to? Uh, there seemed to be also some more uh, increased questions about guideline M technology, which I think is a very, especially with the society today, I think it's something they should be looking into more. And I think that's probably where a lot more issues are going to come up because as more people who are very familiar with technology get into these roles of investigators and, and adjudicators, not that they're not sufficient now, but a lot of people that know what some of these software and internet services are, we're going to probably go into that a lot more in adjudications. I think that that's going to be a, a big point. Are you talking about the questions around illegally introducing, using, removing hardware, software, media from an IT system in the past five years? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Then those are new questions, right? That's That seems pretty notable in light of the Discord leaks and, and things like that, right? 
I mean, it's always sort of been there, but it's like, depends on who's investigating you, you know, DOD, it may be an issue, may not be an issue, but for a lot of IC agencies, they'll dig into that during the polygraph. If you're, you know, going for an SCI or bear or base clearance with them. And so you'll get into it anyways. This just sort of like asks the questions, which I think is a good thing, you know? And I think that that's, that's probably where we should focus our time more on, I mean, as the government uh, than on the marijuana usage issues. It's every state's done this almost, and we shouldn't have these two different standards. It's just, I don't know that we have the political will in either party to try and change the the Controlled Substances Act. It's going to take like a bipartisan effort. And I'm not sure that that's a real election seller for anyone. So I think that we're left with kind of, you know, liberalizing it. And that's kind of what they're trying to do. But it's still there. And I think it's just going to be an agency by agency decision. I think DOD will be your most standard one, which will be which will probably give you a little bit more leeway on things. And another thing this form attempts to do is continue kind of an ongoing effort to destigmatize mental health treatment and the fact that it is very unlikely that it will impact your ability to go and get a security clearance. What's notable about the changes in the mental health section of this new questionnaire? One of the things I noted is, I mean, the item that has stayed pretty much the same is the question that asks, have you ever been diagnosed by a physician with psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, psychoaffective disorder, delusional disorder, bipolar mood disorder, borderline personality disorder, or antisocial personality disorder? So that's similar. But then they sort of drop down, you know, into these series of focusing on the last five years, you know, as opposed to focusing on forever, which is great because, you know, sometimes people have had mental health issues that have either stabilized or have gone away. And that's, that's important because you can have security clearance cases where we're talking about something that occurred in an episode like 10 years ago and or 15 years ago, and you haven't had anything since. And so you haven't had any treatment since that time because you're okay and you were treated and your doctor said you were fine. So uh, I noticed also one of the questions is, if in the last five years, what is the name of the healthcare professional who diagnosed you? That's helpful because so many of these healthcare professionals retire, leave the business. And, you know, then they're like, okay, what, what happened? And it's hard to get documents. The other thing that, that I found interesting is that in the past five years, have you been admitted to a hospital? You know, that's another narrowing because it's, it used to be ever. So I think that that's helpful. And I mean, this is really one of these things that like, I mean, I've been handling Security clearance cases, I think, 99, and it used to be back in those days, depression and anxiety could trigger adjudications. And so I'm just thankful to see that the forms are finally recognizing that nobody here gets gets out unscathed, <laughs> you know, that there's more, I guess the word to say is there more, not kindness, but more, slightly bit more understanding about about these health conditions. And so so this is good. I mean, they didn't take away any of the major categories. Oh, they did add some interesting questions, which I don't know what to make of them, but they're good questions. Uh, have you ever believed you had any of the following? Uh, psychotic symptoms, hearing, seeing, or smelling things that were not real, paraphrasing, or manic or hypomanic disorders or episodes, sustained periods of high energy, a plan to hurt or kill someone that you either acted upon or would have acted upon. And then the question of whether or not you sought treatment. 
for in the last five years for these? I think those are those are good questions. I mean, they're they're fair because a lot of people don't get diagnosed too. I mean, I'm defending these individuals. So, you know, would I rather them not be in this situation? Yeah, sure. But I can see the government's purpose in asking these questions because a lot of people go undiagnosed. John Barry, a security clearance attorney at Barry and Barry, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.